revolution. Well, you know. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap unless you've mastered corn gruel. I mean, seriously, get some cornmeal from Whole Grain Milling. It's $3 for two pounds, uh, under $3 for two pounds at Ferndale Market in Cannon Falls. Um, and uh, so, so there are some cheap foods out there that can um, still be healthy and good. And I'm also a person who knows that when we do better for future generations, we do better for ourselves now. And I'm very pleased to have on today's show Keith Keeley. He's the co-executive director of Savannah Institute, laying the groundwork for agroforestry. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Keith. Thank you, Laura. Really happy to be here. Yeah. So tell us a little bit, what is agroforestry? Agroforestry is a $5 word for any time you have trees on a farm that are there for a specific purpose and are a part of the workings of that farm. So if we drive through most parts of the United States, we see monoculture after monoculture. Is that agroforestry? <laughs> uh, no, it, it's, it's not. I, I would say certainly if there's no trees, it's not agroforestry. Uh, but even if there are trees, if they're just grown in a monoculture plantation or if they're just uh, trees that happen to be there and are sort of forgotten and not a part of the farm in any purposeful sense, we don't call that agroforestry either. Um, but the right tree in the right place, can add a lot to a farm, both in terms of uh, how it operates as a business, as well as a lot of benefits uh, to the ecology of that farm and society at large. So, and you have uh, your website um, talks about um, if, if millions of acres of agroforestry um, can not only be more profitable for farmers, but would move the way we eat from being part of the problem, part of that which is causing climate change and so much disruptions um, in bee pollination and, and, bee, and so much disruption to the natural. It can move, we can move agriculture from being part of the problem to being part of the solution. Yeah, isn't, isn't that the amazing and, and really hopeful thing about it is um, that it's not just about agriculture being less bad, but actually what positive things can we do for the world and for each other just by how we farm and how we eat. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's really incredible. It's a long list of things that agroforestry can do for farms and for the world at large. So let's get into some of this. Um, it builds soil. How does agroforestry build soil? Yeah. So if you look almost anywhere in quote unquote natural environments and ecosystems, you, uh, you don't see tillage of the soil, you know, where every year the soil is getting tilled up and disturbed. So agroforestry at its most basic level is about perennial plants staying in place. And the miracle of, of plants is that they take sunlight and they pump a lot of that in, as sugar energy down into the soil life, the, the bacteria and all the other wildly diverse parts of the soil life and and that's really what builds soil is the active living things in the soil and so perennial plants that like trees that have their roots in the ground all year long are feeding that soil life and so that's how you build soil is through the life in the soil and i've heard the um, ceo of general mills talk about we've lost half of the topsoil so the vitality of our topsoil is critical to human survival on this planet yeah, it's true. It's it's um, it's really uh, uh you know, the, the someone said the fact that we are here at all is dependent on the six inches of topsoil and the fact that it rains. Um, and so, when we start, and in some places it's much more than six inches, thank goodness. But in many cases, we've lost um, much more than that too. And so, 
keeping what we have in place, you know, it really takes, um, in some cases, it's irreplaceable when we lose that soil. But we can build back what we still have and protect uh, from losing more. Really, you know, one of the most important things that we can do is just keep keep the ground covered. Um, you know, there's a the great organization I really love, Practical Farmers of Iowa. It's got a T-shirt that says, don't farm naked. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, it's talking about, you know, keeping the soil covered. Uh, but, of course, it's usually important to keep ourselves covered, too. <laughs> and when we build the soil, we also capture carbon. How does that work? Yeah, that's really the powerful um, and uh, one of the key, motiva- key motivations for many of us at the Savannah Institute is that um, soil holds an enormous amount of, of carbon, um, more than is in the atmosphere, is carbon dioxide. And so when we lose soil and when we lose soil life, then we're losing carbon into the atmosphere and, and part of, like you say, that problem that's causing global warming. But when, but we can reverse things. That's one of the really amazing things about soil and um, and and trees and all kinds of plants is that we can be a sponge that's soaking that carbon back out of the atmosphere and storing it in the soils and in the tree trunks. Um, you know, so and and not only does that help with uh, making it could potentially make a, a meaningful impact on the carbon balance between the atmosphere and the other pools of carbon. And so essentially put the brakes on or even reverse climate change if we do it at scale. But there's all kinds of benefits to the farm, too. Soil that has more carbon uh, is more resilient to drought, and it it soaks up more water, and so it prevents floods, and uh, it's host to more biodiversity. So there are all kinds of benefits to having more carbon uh, in our farming systems rather than in the atmosphere. Let's let's talk about water. So how does it capture water in slow runoff? How does agroforestry do that? Yeah, um, well, I come from the Kickapoo Valley uh, in southwestern Wisconsin, which is right in the heart of the Driftless Area. And for anyone who's traveled through that part of the country, um, you know that there's all these hills and valleys. And, and we have had, in, especially in the last decade, but, but throughout um, time, just the way that that landscape is shaped there's, it's really prone to flooding. And so, uh, so I'm personally, you know, very, it's very important and meaningful to me to think about how can our farming help prevent those, those floods, especially as our storms get more extreme uh, in the age of climate change. And the way agroforestry can do that is, again, keeping the soil covered. It's like when you pour a glass of water out on a table without a tablecloth, um, it just spills off the edge. And it's the same when rain falls on land that isn't covered. It just spills off the edge and runs off, and you get, you know, flashy floods. But when you have uh, the soil covered, like putting a, t- a tablecloth on the table, then it, it soaks that up. And, and so the vegetation itself is important in slowing down that rainwater and helping it infiltrate. And then really the way that soil structure works, the more carbon you have in there and the more roots you have in there, the, um, the more spongy it is, literally, to soak up that water, and it can hold more water and, and soak it up faster when we have extreme rain or, or other precipitation events. And as a gardener, I know that's better than the soil becomes, um, it's better to grow vegetables and different products in that. The, it's a self, the natural world is self-generating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, um, you know, in a broader sense, agroforestry is about 
taking those natural processes and even the natural wisdom, if you will, of how nature works and making that a, a part of our farming systems rather than trying to fight against nature and control everything, but really taking those natural the way ecosystems work and, and making our agriculture work more that way. And one of the other benefits of agroforestry is that it reduces the need for tealing and for fossil fuels and other inputs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that falls right into that, uh, you know, working with nature rather than against it. A lot of the things we put on our farm fields, um, the various chemicals, pesticides, insecticides, fungicides, uh, fertilizers, all of that is to replace things that natural ecosystems do. Natural ecosystems, you know, develop their own fertility. They have a natural system of checks and balances for pests. Um, and when we oversimplify things into monocultures, we erase all of those natural processes. So agroforestry is about building back that diversity and the natural processes so that we don't need to add all these toxins and fossil fuels into our farming systems to make them work. So it's about moving to a, um, a hum- humility, a relationship with um, nature that's humble instead of prideful? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, nature has got... Life has got 3.7 billion years of R&D of trial and error to figure out what works. And, you know, we have a pretty short track record for industrial agriculture of just a couple of generations, really, where, you know, we got our hands on some pretty powerful tools but didn't think about what's actually the best way to use them, especially in the long term, but, but in the short term as well. And the irony is that farmers would make more money if they... Uh, per acre. You've got some really good, strong research on that, and we'll be talking later in the program about the specific products, uh, hazelnuts and juneberries and honeybush berries, where farmers can diversify and actually earn more money um, by um, farming in a way that honors water and soil and um, is actually maybe even more funner. Yeah, I, I think it's certainly more more rewarding. It uh, can be both in terms of financially and non-financial aspects of why we farm, too. And you know, it's no secret that farmers all over are really struggling financially. Um, and it's not through, in almost all cases, it's not through faults of their own. You know, the system is really stacked against farmers. And it's, it's by design meant to extract both farmers' efforts as well as the inherent value of the land. And so it is about the crops and the practices. But agroforestry is really, really well suited, I think, to a more community-centered form of agriculture where it's not based on extractive economics, but rather how are people a part of the farming systems that are supporting them. And in some cases, those are direct personal relationships. In, our, in other cases, they're, they're, um, they're more distant economic relationships, but they're more intentional too. And um, I, it, you know, I think many of the listeners are probably you know, familiar with, with what that looks like in terms of community-supported agriculture and farmers markets. Um, but it really does come back to, to uh, healthy eating and how, you know, the, the, the foods that we eat, like you say, there's no such thing as cheap foods. So right. Except for corn growth. Corn growth is, is a really good cheap food that can be done well. <laughs> um, so we're talking with Keith, um, uh, with, Keith uh, with the Savannah Institute. And next we're going to be talking about the 2020 perennial um, uh, farm tour. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. 
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who knows that oh, we all, when we do better for future generations, we do better for ourselves now. We're talking about um, agroforestry and the upcoming perennial farm gathering, um, and with us is Keith Keeley. He's the co-executive director of Savannah Institute. And um, when, before we went on break, we were talking about all the benefits of moving to an agroforest um, system. One of the other benefits of this is the um, helping out the pollinators and the insects. How does, how does agroforestry do that, Keith? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that, Laura, because um, insects are so important to, um, to all life, uh, and humans included. And our farming, as well as other parts of modern society, have, have made it hard on insects. So agroforestry, by virtue of having more diversity, more different kinds of plants, provide more. there's more habitat there, more places for the insects to live. And different kinds of plants uh, flowering or having other food resources available for those insects at different times of the year. And so it's, it, that is really what it comes down to, is if the habitat is there, you know, the insects will be there. And so when we take out large swaths of the land and turn them into monocultures without much usable habitat, um, then it's inevitable that we're going to lose our insects. So farming in a way that encourages uh, diversity and abundance of insects also keeps pests naturally in check uh, by having that diversity there, too. So that's the core of how agroforestry helps pollinators. Yeah, and I've seen this in my own backyard. It's really fun to watch all the variety of insects um, because we've been planting perennials now for decades. So, But the Savannah Institute has an event coming up, the 2020 Perennial Farm Gathering. So tell us about that. Yeah, I'm really excited about the Perennial Farm Gathering. It's a, it's a virtual event this year because of COVID pandemic. Uh, but what that means is anybody anywhere can participate. Uh, so while this is something that we've done every year, since 2013, this is our first time doing it virtually. And um, we've hopped around the Midwest, hosting it in different parts of Illinois and Wisconsin since 2013. And it's, it's about doubled in size each year. So there's been a lot of enthusiasm and excitement. People who participate want to come back the next year and bring new people in. And um, the, the gathering is all about perennial agriculture. And so it's, it's really a, a farmer or a farm-centered event, and a lot of people participating are farmers, but there's all kinds of people, too. There's scientists and chefs and all kinds of community community members who are interested in, in this perennial way of farming. And registration is open now, and it costs how much to uh, participate in this virtual event? Uh, the registration is open. You can find it at savannahinstitute.org, and that's Savannah without an H. Um, you can also just Google Savannah Institute or Perennial Farm Gathering, uh, and registration's open, and we have the highlights of the program posted. It's $80 to participate in the four-day event. Um, we do have some discounts for people in need and also opportunities if you want to support people in need of a scholarship to attend, um, that you can you can pay that $80 registration for somebody else who needs it, too. So this is December 6th through the 9th, and tell us what will be going on. Uh, we have a lot packed into those days, and uh, you can do it all, or you can take a sort of a la carte menu and, and look and see which are the parts that you want to be a part of. Uh, some of the highlights are, especially because we're virtual this year, we've been able to pull in some really incredible speakers from, from all over the country. 
Um, we have a keynote that's a panel of leading agroforesters who are women, and uh, two of them are people of color, too. And so that's uh, something that we've been highlighting for a number of years, is that agroforestry is really built on the wisdom and practices that come out of indigenous and black and people of color communities, um, and that that's where a lot of the roots of agroforestry are. And so uh, we've got messages from Olive Watkins, who's a, an agroforester in North Carolina, sixth generation on her family farm doing agroforestry there, and has recently started an investment fund to support and center black folks in the food system. So she'll be talking about her farm as well as the fund that's supporting uh, other black farmers. And she's joined by Dr. Jafunza Wright-Carter, who's the president and co-founder of the Black Oak Center in Pembroke, Illinois, which is a historically black farming township uh, about an hour south of Chicago. And Savannah Institute has recently started working with uh, Dr. Jafunza and uh, her colleagues at the Black Oak Center to provide um, more education and to develop an agroforestry demonstration farm at the Black Oak Center there as well. So really looking forward to hearing from those two, as well as uh, Kathy Dice, long-term agroforester at Redfern Farms in Iowa. Um, and Kathy is a member of our board of directors for Savannah Institute and has just an excellent experience in, in having a really profitable chestnut-centered agroforestry operation on her farm in Iowa. Yeah, so she produces 80 species of fruits and nut crops and includes a profitable U-Pick chestnut model. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, they have an incredible farm there. Yeah, and we're going to later on in the program talk more about chestnuts and hazelnuts and the economics. But with this black farming, one of the things I saw in a Yes, Mar- uh, yes article magazine that a new generation of black farmers is returning to the land. And this history, um, you know, the, there was a broken promise of 40 acres and a mule, um, lynching that targeted landowners, discrimination by the federal government, and property um, exploitation. That's American history when it comes to black farming. But as a result yeah. of all that, the number of black farmers declined from 14% of the nation's farmers in 1910 to less than 2% with a corresponding loss of 12 million acres. So how do we as a community, um, you know, strive for that more just world, the uh, liberty and justice for all, and how that's connected to our food system and having uh, both a diverse food system and diverse people growing our food? Yeah, well, and we really won't have one without the other. You know, we need a diversity of farmers if we're going to solve the societal and ecological problems that are so inherent to agriculture. So um, I, to me, that's really important, is, and that's why we're um, using what we can with our platform to uh, help uh, sh- share the, the voice of, of some prominent black farmers is because we need their leadership if we're going to solve the many manifold crises of agriculture. Um And, you know, I think it's also important to point out that while that's American history when it comes to uh, the black experience of farming, it's also the American present, you know, and and coming to terms with we have, uh, you know, racism is alive and well in our food system. And it's an uncomfortable and difficult topic, especially for those of us who are white. But but we also, speaking for myself, have the privilege to kind of Uh, look past that or ignore it if we choose to. So I think that's the first step is just to try to not look past it or ignore it, but really come to terms with it and what the lived experience of many people of color who have an interest in agriculture but have been systematically excluded um, from those opportunities. So I think one thing that we can do is to vote because the way a lot of that that 
that systematic exclusion has played out is through um, support from USDA, financial and lending services, and policies that are associated with it. Um, and that there's a lot that happens at the policy level that that plays out in um, what support we give to farmers from different communities. Um, but then there's also how we, how do we vote with what we eat and um, where our food comes from will always be important. Right, and how we uh, know each other again. Keith Keeley is the co-executive director of Savannah Institute. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back uh, talking more about the perennial farm gathering. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student in permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, um, unless you mastered corn gruel, that's less than $3,000 for two pounds. Um, and, um, but also a person who knows that when we do better for future generations, we also do better for ourselves now. And one of the best ways to improve the world for a future generation is to transform our farming systems. And with us right now is Keith Keeley. He's the uh, co-executive director of Savannah Institute. And there is going to be an event, 2020 Perennial Farm Gathering. Um, Keith, um, can we transform the food system? Well, I, I'd say we already are, um, and and we have been uh, for you know generations before you and I, um, and so it's we're also innovating and continuing to discover and uh, improve new ways to farm in ways that support each other and support the earth, um, but we're in the process of transforming it, and I, and I think you know that is a part of why the perennial farm gathering is, is such a highlight for people who participate every year is because. It, it really centers on the solutions and the hope and the joy and um, that, that we have in farming in ways that are that are positive and, and life affirming. So it's it's a great opportunity to connect with other people who for whom that's an important part of their life or something that they're just starting to explore and want to learn more about. So this gathering is December. Um, tell us about the dates and how people um, sign up for it and what they can expect. Sure. Yeah. So you can find Savannah Institute online pretty easily, savannahinstitute.org, or just Google Savannah Institute uh, without an H at the end of Savannah. And you can find all about all out all about the perennial farm gathering, uh, December 6th through 9th, uh, different things going on throughout those days, which you can do it all or take the pieces that are really interesting to you. Um, and there's uh, lots of uh, opportunities to hear from people that have uh, really incredible experience and knowledge. Um, I, I mentioned some of our keynote speakers. In addition to that, we have Eric Tonsmeyer, who is doing a workshop on farm planning for carbon drawdown. He wrote the book on the carbon farming solution, uh, learning how to graft with Tom Wall, also from Redfern Farm. We have a cooking demo with Beth Dooley. Gary Nabhan, one of the fathers of the local food movement uh, from down in, uh, in Arizona, is going to be talking about edible desert polycultures. Uh, it's it's really an incredible lineup that we have. And and the best part, I'll say, for, for me and a lot of people every year, is we do a five-minute, what we call the nutshell, show-and-tell, where uh, everybody who wants to can get a chance to share five minutes about who they are and what they're passionate about. So that's um, that'll be fun to do that virtually this year too, and hear from people all over. And it's open to anyone, the general public, and it's eighty dollars. 
That's right. Yeah, open to anyone. Uh, it's eighty dollars, uh, and that's you know uh, it, that'll go a long ways over over four days. Um, and so we've been able to reduce the price quite a bit because it's virtual this year. Uh, but if eighty dollars is a barrier for you, don't let it be a barrier. We have scholarship opportunities, and if you want to su- support someone who can't afford the eighty dollars but would really find it meaningful, then um, you can purchase a scholarship for someone else too. And uh, last year at the 2019 Perennial uh, Farm Gardening, the um, author of Green Man, Reggie, who's been on the show, he delivered the keynote speech about uh, decolonizing agriculture and build, uh, decolonizing agriculture. And he talks about tree-range pro- uh, poultry where you have hazelnuts and, tree- and chickens um, under the hazelnuts. So it's- Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's been a great advisor uh, and, and inspiration for the work that we do at Savannah Institute, including the keynote message last year, uh, but we've continued to partner with him in other ways too and have some videos uh, up on our website that, that Ray, he has shared some of his w- wisdom and knowledge and experience as well. Um, so, um, yeah, and, and he'll be doing sessions again this year, I should say, too. That's a, kind of a, an add-on from the message last year around decolonizing agriculture. And this year, it's more of a uh, organizing principles of, of how do we work together on that work of decolonization in agriculture. And unfortunately, I, I don't remember the person's name, but I was hearing this presentation on if we could move to an economy uh, that is care first instead of money first. Um, that that is actually more aligned um, with who we are, and it, it it it's 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 simple, but it's also very complex. So, how do I how do I go first to caring about um, my actions and how I'm how money flows in our system um, mm. fr- from um, from what we're doing right now, which is so transactional and uh, limited. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and it's not an easy question, but it's a really important one. I mean, I think at its core, it, it's about um, understanding this sort of uh, the the food watershed, you might say, or the food shed that we're in, and what are the connections between our plates and the landscapes that that they come from. You know, where did our cup of coffee come from? Where did our jar of honey or corn syrup sweetener come from? And once you start following that path of where do these things come from, um, then I think it leads directly to an ethic of care because you can't care about what you don't know. Um, and so the perennial farm gathering is a great way to get to know some you know, new pathways, whether you're a farmer yourself and want to participate in them or whether you just want to be more connected to a food system that's centered on care of each other and care of the earth. Uh, the, the perennial farm gathering is a great way to make those connections and learn more about it. Yeah, care first. Um, I want to talk about specific plants and, and their potential to compete with um, industrial agriculture in a way that uh, uh, helps with climate um, change, in a way that feeds our soil, in a way that helps clean water, in a way that creates a just commod- uh, just economy, you know, in a way that creates trust. So let's talk about some specific plants. Hazelnuts. <laughs> the potential yeah. of hazelnuts. Um, uh, so talk a little bit about hazelnuts. Well, um, hazelnuts are one of the world's favorite flavors. <laughs> of course, <laughs> right? Yeah, hazelnut coffee, um, hazelnut ice cream. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even your Nutella, which is you know more <laughs> sugar, but it wouldn't be 
just sugar if it wasn't for the hazelnut flavor in there. It's what brings people to it. So, uh, But if you've ever had fresh roasted hazelnuts, too, you know that it's just an exquisite thing. And if you've ever grown hazelnuts, you know that humankind are not the only ones that find that flavor delicious. <laughs> I do. I, I'm actually, I've grown hazelnuts, and now I realize why there are extra squirrels in the yard. I mean, we, we have lots of squirrels <laughs> yeah. in our yard right now. and uh, But the hazelnuts are fantastic, and they're so easy to grow, and it's like, what would have happened generations ago if people, instead of being told to plant buckthorn, planted hazelnuts? What would what would the city yeah. be like today? Well, it'd be a whole lot more delicious. Yeah, <laughs> for one, and probably a lot more and, squirrels, uh, you know. <laughs> but that yeah, might be a good thing. I mean, uh, not to not to demonize uh, buckthorn, but hazelnuts are wonderful because they are a native part of our of our ecosystems in the, the Upper Mississippi Valley, and. Um, and you know they're very nutritious. They're very great for uh, for the soil and wildlife. Um, you know they they can store um, a, a plant, a single hazelnut plant in, in its lifetime can pump a, a ton of carbon out of the atmosphere. It's just incredible. You know that's it's really nature's miracle, photosynthesis. And and hazelnuts are um, an exceptional plant at putting a lot of uh, that carbon back down into the soil as well as into the the woody stems and trunks of, of the shrubs. And um, from an uh, um, economic viewpoint, this is a powerhouse. Um, so it's a, hazelnuts right now is a $7 billion global market that's on track to double in size over the coming decade. Um, on your website, um, there is something called perennial crops and includes um, an economic study. So it, it goes into the weeds about, you know, what are what would be involved in a farmer um, growing hazelnuts? So the uh, first year cost, it does cost like $8,400 an acre to start planting these hazelnuts. And the um, annual costs then are about $1,000 um, a year per acre. But the um, the profit um, is, is about $3,800. So t- talk a little bit about that. I mean, hazelnut production could be very profitable, especially as compared to corn and soybean. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I, I should give the, the caveat that... Um, we uh, we are still developing food systems that support people to grow hazelnut at a large scale. Anyone can grow them uh, at a smaller scale for yourself and for your neighbors and, and farmers markets. But you know, there's so much investment, public and private, that has gone into setting up the supply chain for our other commodity crops that we just haven't had that investment for crops like hazelnuts yet. So that opportunity is there, but it's not the table's not fully set yet. So that's a lot of what Savannah Institute's work is doing is to set the table so that somebody um, can have hazelnuts as any farmer can have hazelnuts as a viable alternative to what they're growing now. Right now the system is still kind of stacked against doing that. So it's, it's hard Mm. for people who don't have a lot of appetite for innovation and risk to do it. Now that said, um, we're getting there and, and, and given the right situation, uh, hazelnuts are a about a 10-year break-even point. So like you say, there's um, a need for a lot of investment up front, but that's also a part of our economic system that makes it challenging is that so much is based on short-return profit that we don't have a lot of um, our financial system to set up, set up to support these longer-term investments. Um, and so and it's, it really, I don't think it's a problem with the crop. It's a problem with the way our economy works. 
And I would love to see more innovation and creativity in this effort because, like, I don't want to invest, invest any money in the stock market. I just don't trust the thing. But I would love to invest a little bit of money, like $1,000 or something, and someone planting hazelnuts on their farm and then expect in 10 years to get a return. And I would love to see some innovation in that area. So I'd love to throw out the mm-hmm. invite if you know anyone that would be good to come on the show and we can be talking about how do we how do we crack this hazelnut thing because – I, and in some ways, I actually even found myself a little angry as to why the progress is going so slow because um, the benefits for mm-hmm. hazelnut farming is so tremendous. Um, I love this mm-hmm. quote from E.O. Wilson. What we need is a basic sense of kindness and using the unrelenting application of reason. So under the unla- – un- just mm. applying some reason, hazelnuts – captures carbon. It can. It has the potential um, to supplant soybeans as a stable source of protein and oil. Um, and your analysis showed that maybe the profit margin after the establishment cost could be some like $500 an acre. Compare that to corn farmers right now that um, the profitable ones are making a couple hundred and many farmers are losing money on corn and soybeans. So there is so much potential out there. Um, also, on your on your website, you say that 30% of annual carbon emissions could be sequestered in woody biomass of loan if hazelnuts replace the existing 84 acres of corn and soybeans across the Midwest. So the potential is tremendous. It, it really is. You know, if, if we adopted perennial crops as um, alternatives to annual monocultures, we could really make a dent in our annual emissions budget, which isn't to say that we shouldn't also um, curb uh, climate change causing emissions in other fashions, but we need uh, all the above sort of approach to really addressing this climate crisis. And um, and I share your frustration that things have not uh, advanced swiftly enough. That's part of how the Savannah Institute came into existence, is saying we need a vehicle that's able to really accelerate uh, the options that farmers have to practice agroforestry and uh, draw climate healing agriculture. I'll say in terms of the finances, Olive Watkins, the keynote at our perennial farm gathering, is uh, has started an investment fund that does what you say, you know, to give an opportunity for people who want to invest in agroforestry. Awesome. Keith Keeley with the Savannah Institute will be back right after this break. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. We're talking with Keith O'Keeley with the Savannah Institute, and there's a big a perennial farm gathering um, in, uh, in December, and you can get more details by going to their website, savannahinstitute.org. And um, on break, we're just talking about all the potentials, the hazelnuts, and, and there's so many of these uh, plants that could be um, so wonderful for our society. And um, the Midwest chestnut, uh, the U.S. produces less than 1% of the global chestnut population, and we're importing 20 million dollars worth of chestnuts. Chestnuts were indigenous. Um, in 1904, um, one, in, uh, one in every four hardwoods um, in the Appalachians were American chestnuts. The chestnut stays in our song, Roasting Chestnuts, but what happened is a blight and it wiped out a lot of the chestnuts. If we bring the chestnuts back, yes, we can have a different farm system. They're great for food. And um, so back to you, Keith. I mean, the, the potential for agroforestry is just so tremendous. 
Yeah, well, uh, again, I really hope folks can join us for the perennial farm gathering coming up and learn more about that potential and learn from others who are really uh, inspired by it. Um, in in the meantime, just next week, we have another event to explore all the possibilities of agroforestry, or many of them. Uh, October 28th, we have a virtual tour of one of the Savannah Institute's demonstration farms called Silverwood Farm. And we have their... Um, alley cropping, where there's a farmer doing no-till organic soybeans uh, between the rows of trees, as well as a highly diverse tasting orchard, where we have 40 different species or so of different types of perennial crops that people can grow and eat uh, in Wisconsin and Minnesota, from hardy pecan to chestnut to Ukrainian almond to honeyberry, apricot, Asian pear, um, plums, Cornelian cherries, all kinds of things that um, can and should be a part of our diverse and restorative agroforestry farming systems. So tune in on October 28th. There's details there on our website. That's, I believe that's free of charge, too, so anybody can participate in that virtual farm tour if you'd like to learn more. Yeah, that's free, and it's about creating a community, uh, community forest gardens working with the park departments. Yeah, it's, it's really a great partnership. It's a, uh, a farm that was donated to the city that they turned into a park that still has the farmland attached. So we partnered um, with the the park system to put in an agroforestry uh, learning farm there. Again, I, I, again, I, I see the beautiful vision of um, of what we could leave for future generations. And I do believe that when we leave the world better for the future, we also create it better for us now. <laughs> it's not a sacrifice. Absolutely. It's 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 not a sacrifice. It, it's about creating it better right now. And um, would love to see this. Um, I want to hear a little bit. We've got only about five minutes left in the show. You can talk again about the uh, perennial farm gathering and how people can get information about that. Yes, uh, so you can head to our website, savannainstitute.org, and register. Uh, it's a four-day event from December 6th to 9th. Uh, it's $80, but if that's a barrier, we have scholarship opportunities, or, or you can purchase a scholarship for somebody else who might need it if you'd like to support us that way. And um, we just got all kinds of agroforestry speakers, interactive sessions, uh, so you can be a part of it as well. And a chance to share your story, too, if you'd like, in our five-minute uh, nutshell show-and-tell session. So there's there's something for everyone, really, who's interested in um, uh, different ways of farming. And um, one of the themes of um, Standing Rock was water is life. Um, and I wanted to also cover your personal background a little bit. Um, tell us a little bit about um, yourself. Sure. Um, so I grew up in the Driftless area, the Kickapoo Valley in southwestern Wisconsin, and I, I grew up playing in a little trout stream and in, in the woods, and there were lots of farms around. It was one of the uh, really growth areas of, of organic agriculture, and so I grew up experiencing that there, that, you know, when we set our minds to it, we really can farm in different ways that support uh, life on earth, uh, humans and wildlife, and water really is the center of that. And so I had a tremendous opportunity after college to go live with farmers all over the world uh, in different countries and places and, and learn about different forms of uh, spirituality and how they play out in the ways that, that people farm across the world. And, and farming really is a, a spiritual thing. And, um, you know, it's one of the most intimate and influential actions 
that we have uh, on Earth, how we connect with each other, and how we get what we need from the Earth. So it's it's a deeply spiritual thing, and and I think um, you know part of how we find our way through the many challenges that we have uh, in this time on Earth is to to reconnect with what's the, what's the true purpose of, of why we do this, why do we farm. Yeah, and again, I, 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 there's so much I would have loved to cover on, on like the potential for black currants and honeybush berries and uh, service berries and June berries and um, uh, pawpaw nuts and hazelnuts and, and pecans and having these systems with free-range animals and small uh, – I'm going to go back to something that Kathy Connell, a farmer, said, is my sweetest dream is that small farmers can make it on 20 acres and how we all work together, which includes the large place too because they have a place it's not like <laughs> like even you said when you said that buckthorn's not really the enemy or it's not really <laughs> but yeah how, how do we create something that that moves in the right direction that we want it that that honors uh, future generations yeah it's a, it's a big question but it's so important i mean i i think that understanding where your food is coming from it's it's not that easy in many ways um but it's it's one of these things, like you say, that it, it both makes the world better for the future, but also a richer and more full and joyful experience to have that connection with growing your own food or knowing the people who are raising your food or or knowing the story of you know the communities that are a part of taking care of landscapes and providing food for people. So I think that's a big part of it is just making that a part of our, our purpose in life is um, you know, eating eating with a mission. Yeah. So Keith Keeley, co-executive director of Savannah Institute, last minute here, anything else you'd like to touch on? Uh, well, I would invi- invite folks again to come to our perennial farm gathering. Uh, I think it, it, it's our first year doing it virtually. Uh, and so a chance for people all over to participate. And um, we've put a lot of thought into how to make it fun and inspirational and informative so I hope you'll join us there um, or October 28th. If you want to come for our free virtual farm tour of Silverwood Farm, uh, please join us there as well. Or keep stay tuned with Savannah Institute, and there are lots of other ways to connect with us. Uh, you can find those on our website or get in touch with us other ways. So. Um, yeah, yeah so I think for those instance, would be the main things, really. Yeah, yeah on January. Appreciate it, Laura. Yeah, I appreciate it too. On uh, January twentieth, uh, Minnesota three hundred and fifty activist Mystique um, uh, is is also going to be um, doing something on climate change, and later on on February ninth, mm-hmm. you have something on value added products. So how do we how do we take the sad song and make it better? How do we form? I mean, because one of the big barriers is is the market. How do we transform the market so that it works in a under an ethic of water as life? Yeah. Absolutely. I think uh, agroforestry has a lot of opportunities to really flip the script from agriculture being a key part of the problem to it, to agriculture being a key part of the solution, defining our way as a global community in this world. Global community in this world, uh, water is life. You've been listening to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you so much, Keith, with Savannah Institute. And thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio.